This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hi, I'm Marie Cummings. I'm a bookseller at Barnes & Noble, and I'm honored and delighted to be talking with Nick Medina, author of the incredible debut novel, Sisters of the Lost Nation. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Marie. Thank you so much for having me. We are so happy that you're here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Sisters of the Lost Nation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sisters of the Lost Nation mainly revolves around uh, two sisters, uh, the oldest being Anna Horn. She's 17 years old um, in high school. She's a bit of an outcast, a bit different than her classmates. And for the most part, she she doesn't really care. You know, she, she's not out to impress anybody. She uh, has her own thing going on. She's deeply in love with her tribe's history and her tribe's story. By the way, I should mention that characters are Native American, so mm -hmm. uh, they live on a reservation in Louisiana, the Dakota Reservation, which is a fictionalized um, tribe for the novel. On the reservation, young women and girls start to go missing, and Anna really becomes very consumed by this, very concerned, especially when her younger sister, Grace, who's 15, goes missing as well. And so throughout the story, we see Anna starting to put together the pieces, trying to figure out what's going on here. And at the same time, she's being haunted by this story from her childhood, the story that her uncle told her when she was seven years old about a creature that can stalk you and uh, consume you. And she starts to think that maybe this creature is what's responsible for what's going on on the reservation as well. So it's kind of a mystery thriller, but also a good amount of horror that comes from Native folk folklore. And they'll give the reader a thrilling time and uh, maybe even a scare. But also at the same time, you get to learn a bit about this social issue of Native women and girls going missing. And that's really what I hope a lot of people will take away from this, having more awareness of that issue. The horrors in it were the stuff of nightmares, truly. But the missing girls was so heart-wrenching. And it must be so scary for Anna and the other girls on the reservation just to see the people around them going missing. and little to nothing is being done about it. So what inspired you to write this story? Uh, one day I woke up and I went outside and there was a newspaper on my driveway and I don't subscribe to the newspaper and it wasn't it wasn't either of my neighbors. So it wasn't there really by mistake and I, I didn't know where it came from. So you know, I just picked it up and I tossed it into the recycling bin and I didn't really think much about it. Uh, but then later that day, I started getting this nagging feeling like you should at least look at that paper, you know? So I went and I, I dug it out of the recycling bin in the garage and I started flipping through it. And there was an article in there and it said, well, the headline was Epidemic Hits Native Americans. And it caught my attention immediately. And I just started reading it. And it was about these two sisters, the Loring sisters, Ashley Loring, who was, um, I believe, 20 years old at the time. This was in 2017. She went missing from her tribe's reservation in, I believe it was Montana. And her older sister, Kimberly, was out searching for her. Um, and she vowed, you know, I'm never going to stop searching. She said, I'll search until I'm 80 years old. And unfortunately, she is still searching. She hasn't found her sister yet. As soon as I read that article, I just had an idea. And it, it really took off right from there. That very night, I started outlining ideas for this story. And then, of course, I researched other stories. You know, there's so many instances of this happening. There's so many families out there who are missing one of their loved ones. And it's truly heartbreaking. You know, that was the real inspiration for it. It really is so heartbreaking. And you had mentioned when you were giving us the quick rundown of the book that you fictionalized Anna's tribe. There was a couple of reasons. First, 
there are certain things in the book that I didn't want to necessarily put on any specific tribe. Like I didn't want to saddle any tribe with um, certain issues in the book uh, because I didn't want people to start to associate maybe that tribe with what's going on in the novel. And it also gave me more freedom as a writer to create the world that I wanted to create. You know, the reservation in the book is based on an actual reservation, but it's not 100% accurate. So it, it gives me that freedom of just being able to create the world that I wanted to create for these characters. Right. And then knowing, too, that you fictionalized the tribe, the newspaper said. It was, it's an epidemic for Indigenous people. It's not anything that affects just one tribe. It's everyone. It's a real problem. Yeah, great point as well. And I named the tribe the Dakota tribe, mm -hmm. which is a Sioux word, which means friend to all. So I wanted it to be a tribe that could relate to perhaps all tribes, even though, you know, tribes are greatly different. But I wanted it to be something that would be relatable and which could, you know, include. Yeah. That's so beautiful friend to all. And the tribe felt so real as a reader and all of the stories that you put together to really build that world of Anna's tribe and the reservation. What influenced or in um, inspired the details that you chose? Some of them actually come from my family's experience. I am part of a tribe, the, the Tunica Biloxi tribe in Louisiana. So that's where I drew a lot of my influences for this tribe as well. Uh, the novel is set in Louisiana, so it is a, a native Louisiana tribe. So, yeah, a lot of the ideas just came from my experiences, my family's experiences, things I remember from my childhood. My grandmother did grow up on the reservation in Louisiana, and I remember certain things that she had told me. I also was able to find a documentary um, from my tribe that gave me a lot of um, information that I was able to use and um, adapt so that I could create this setting and, and this world. I loved reading about all of the different animals and just the stories that Anna was pulling in, like when she saw the squished frogs or when she would talk about the armadillos or the crocodiles. Were those part of the details you were pulling in to build the tribe? Yeah, part, parts of that. Um, from my tribe, the Tunica Biloxi tribe, the alligator is a really significant animal. So I wanted to incorporate that as well. So that was part of the influence in the story where you know she's talking about the origin of the uh, the tribe. A couple of the other stories were just based on other legends that I gathered from uh, other tribes. I, I read a lot of lore and folklore, so I was able to pull in different things uh, that I had come across. And then uh, with the frogs, um, you know, the frogs are really significant for many, many Native nations. And I've always liked frogs as well. And actually, when I was writing this book, there was an incident one day where I was driving home and I was driving home in the rain and around me where I live there's always a lot of frogs but when it rains they all go into the street so I often find myself just stopping and trying to usher them out of the road kind of like Anna would do and uh, there was one day when I got out and I was going to try to save this massive bullfrog and before I could get it someone just came and ran right over it so that really was the inspiration for the, the frogs in the story and, you know, the, the frogs being in the road. Uh, that's something that you, you'll find very early on in the book. Yeah, they're drawn to that heat. And unfortunately, that heat for the frogs is the paving heat. Yeah. Uh, you touched on this a little bit, just in saying that you've been, you've pulled from a lot of lore that you read. 
One thing that I really loved in your note at the end of the book was that you said that the Dakota Nation isn't based on a single Native culture. It's a unification of Native stories, traditions, and beliefs. You've talked about that a little bit so far, but were there any resources you used to build this culture? There's a couple of resources that I used. Um, Some of them are from my tribe itself. We have a few published books with some short stories that I was able to use. Um, There's various resources I found online that compile a lot of different tales from different tribes that I found really useful. I can't remember the name of that website offhand, but it's easy to find if you were to Google it. Um, Also, like I said, I used the documentary that I found. Yeah. Yeah, I think those were the main things that I'd used to, to find different stories. Some of the stuff was just also in my head. I don't remember where I first encountered some of the right. things. Like I remember for the the creature aspect of the book, that was something that I already had in my head, something that I had already read before. Um, I did then go look up more information about it, but uh, you know, some stuff is just already there. Yeah. Was it like with Anna, did someone tell you that scary story as a child, <laughs> the rolling head? No, not exactly. I, I was actually able to, uh, have fun with that one. The book starts off with this this scary story, this campfire story. And uh, that was really fun to write. I, I love that kind of stuff where you get to kind of create something creepy and just kind of dive into it and have fun with it. Oh, it was so creepy. <laughs> yeah. I love being able to describe it. Putting in those descriptors was so much fun for me. That was something that was almost not in the book. That, really? The, the op- yeah, the opening chapter with the campfire story was one that we added on or I added on uh, late in the editing process. We weren't settled on how we wanted to start the book. I had an opening chapter, but we weren't sure if it was the right chapter. And then one day, um, I can't remember if it was my agent. Yeah, it was my agent who suggested, why don't you tell the story? Why don't you open open with that? And um, I was so happy she she came up with that idea because I think it worked out really well. And like I said, it was so much fun to write. You gave so much description to the head but left it vague enough throughout that I found myself saying sometimes like with Grace and Robbie saying like it's probably just a raccoon Anna you're fine but then the other side of it is like what if something is really following her what if something's so scary what if it bit her ankles oh no you know and maybe we should make that clear I think I was just referring to it as a creature but yeah it's this disembodied head that Anna sees following her um, and, and which her uncle told her about when she was seven years old, this head that can follow you and uh, roll behind you and ultimately eat you if it wanted to. So, I mean, you've talked a little bit about your research. What's your process like? Do you research while you're writing or do you get it all out and then go back a little bit later? It's a bit of both. I am an outliner, so I do like to prepare and plan in advance. So I try to get as much out as I can so that I have a really solid idea of what I'm doing and where I'm headed. But then, you know, as I'm writing, oftentimes I'll come across something where I need a little more information. And so start doing more research as I'm writing, or I might end up just going in a completely different direction than I had originally planned. So, of course, then I'll have to stop and take a pause and uh, do a bit of uh, investigation to find the information that I need for, for whatever direction I'm now headed in. Typically, I do like to be pretty well prepared when I'm sitting down to to write something. Did anything surprise you as you were writing this? Going back to the the social issue of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, I was kind of peripherally aware of the issue um, when I started. But as I was you know, getting deeper into this and doing more research, 
I found the statistics and the numbers regarding this issue just really, really uh, surprising. And it's so much bigger than I'd ever imagined. And that really kind of shook me. You know, there's so many stories, like I said before, so many heartbroken families out there. And there's so many articles and documentaries that you can watch about it now because it is gaining so much more attention. That part was surprising. You touched on those statistics a little bit in your author's note at the end of the book, and it's truly mind-boggling and insane to think that it's not top of mind for everyone as all of these women and girls have gone missing. And unfortunately, maybe that's just because there's so much stuff like this going on in the world. It's not just natives who are impacted, it's other minorities, other groups. Uh, So, you know, unfortunately, there is so much to be aware of. But yeah, you would think or hope that, you know, when a young girl, 13, 14 years old, goes missing, that people would put more attention into it and really try to find the reason behind it. Another thing that is really surprising was that I found that a lot of cases just get attributed to an accident or some easy explanation. So, you know, if they find a girl out dead in the cold, they might just say, oh, it's hypothermia, and they'll leave it at that, but not investigate why was this young girl out in the middle of nowhere in the cold with no clothes on? You know, it's more than just hypothermia. So those type of things are shocking. And that combined with the jurisdictional issues that you really like outline in the book must make it so infuriating for the people who are living these experiences. Definitely very frustrating for, for the families going through this, but it's also frustrating for the authorities themselves. So you have to look at it from both ways, because if, you know, a, a young girl goes missing on a reservation and then the authorities get called off the reservation, they're going to say, well, what was she doing? And if she's on the reservation, if, the, if that's the last place she was seen, then it's kind of your responsibility to try to find it. Uh, so they don't really have the reason or motivation to dedicate funds that probably are lacking in the first place. You know, everyone struggles with money. So it's like, where do we put our money? Who do we put our attention on? And if it's not a clear cut issue, if the person didn't go missing, you know, off the reservation or from a specific establishment or from a specific home or address uh, can make things pretty murky and and hard to determine who's responsible and who's going to know, take the lead. Yeah. And then, so then going back to the story, it really feels like if Anna wasn't paying attention and wasn't so persistent in figuring out what happened to Grace and also Missy and the other mm-hmm. girls, it feels like it just would have been like, well, they ran away or they're gone. Yeah. She's so strong and resilient. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired her character? Yeah, I wanted Anna to be someone who was very independent. I wanted her to be someone who had who had faith in herself, but also a bit of doubt. And I think that comes through in the story. She's a strong character, but she doesn't know her strength from the beginning. Yeah, she's really human in that way. Yeah, I just wanted her to be someone who was a little different because it does show the difference between her and her sister. And I think it gives this kind of a duality to the story but I just wanted to show how how different the two characters are so Anna and her sister you know Anna is this very independent kind of strong strong person very stubborn as well uh and her sister Grace is also very stubborn but in a different way she's more persistent in the things that she wants and she maybe is a bit more self-centered yeah I feel like you really nailed that sister relationship though too just 
Side note. <laughs> but yeah, some other stuff that inspired Anna also came from historical elements. Anna is a, a character who ultimately becomes what, what's known as two-spirited in the Native or Native history. And I wanted to, without getting too into like sexual orientation or sexual identity, I, I wanted to be able to reflect a little bit of how traditionally Native people have accepted gays, lesbians, transgender, because... I think it, it also adds to the social commentary. So Anna is one of those characters who, you know, she's not just one thing. She's not just girl. She's not just, you know, someone who's easy to identify um, by looking at her or by even just talking to her. You have to get to know her more and you have to be able to let her show you who she is because she is kind of this caretaker, in a sense, a healer, um, someone who you know, is ultimately going to be very important to her tribe once she grows into her role, basically. Yeah, I love that because the book is a journey for truth in many ways. And as a teenage girl, as as a teenager, just in general, you're trying to figure out who you are. And once those stories of the two spirits um, started clicking into place for her, it felt like she was finding who she was through all of this terror and heartache she was experiencing. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad that that came through. It's really the the challenge and the heartache of what she's going through that does help fuel her and help her find who she is and what she needs to be. And it helps her also realize what she can ultimately mean to her tribe. Yeah. And the other part of what was so beautiful about this book, um, you know, aside from her pursuit of her sister and the other missing girls is the importance of Indigenous stories and how she's keeping the stories alive by going into Miss Shelby's trailer and reading her books. And you can, can you talk a little bit about Anna's efforts there? Her tribe is at a point right now where they are really focused on new things. So they have a recently built hotel and casino on their land. And, you know, everyone is very excited about it and very focused on it and hoping to grow it and to make more money. And so Anna sees this and she kind of sees it as losing the past, losing the things that were important to the tribe when she was a little bit smaller. So about 10 years before. And, you know, she really values her tribe's history. She values the tribe's stories. And the the character in the book, Miss Shelby, she is a, a legend keeper and a singer for the tribe. And she used to tell Anna all these stories when she was a child. So Anna really wants to hold on to that. So after Miss Shelby goes missing herself, um, Anna starts to go into a trailer and to you know look up those old stories and to try to uh, retain them and remember them. And she's hoping that the, the tribe will help preserve them. You know, she just really doesn't want to lose that aspect of the tribe. She wants that history to still remain and to be strong and to be something that does uh, influence her people and which her people will cherish. Yeah. And it feels like if she didn't do that, they would have been lost forever because who else was going into that trailer and taking in those stories? Yeah. And and then ultimately, it's those stories that help her you know, figure out what and it, and it helps her grow as well. And and you know, find herself. Yeah, I just really love that. And you mentioned that Miss Shelby was the legend keeper. Can you talk about that a little bit more, what a legend keeper is? 
Sure, yeah, that's something that I had pulled from my own tribe, um, the singers and legend keepers. They're people who are just very familiar with the you know origin stories, the traditional stories. They will show up at various events, the powwows, the celebrations throughout the year, and they'll share the stories or they'll lead in song or they might even lead in different prayers. Uh, so they are significant figures and um, they do hold a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom about the past. And um, so, yeah, they are cherished people. And that's who Miss Shelby was in this tribe. For the sake of the story, she was the last in the line, you know. So once she goes missing, the stories go with her. And that's really part of what fuels Anna's fear. You know, she's like, who's going to who's going to carry on these these stories? Who's going to remember them? Who's going to pass them down? Uh, so that's part of her quest as well. You know, keeping the history alive while also trying to keep these young women and girls alive is, at the same time. Yeah. And it seems like Miss Shelby knew that um, she had to do something to keep the stories alive because Anna found that handwritten notebook. And thank goodness for that, right? Uh, Anna finds these notebooks written by uh, Miss Shelby with the stories in them. And that's really the saving grace. That's where she finds some of the answers that lead her to where she needs to go in the story and uh, ultimately helps her preserve um, those parts that she doesn't want to see lost. Because you talk a lot about the past and the future progress and loss in the book and just right now while we're talking. So do you think that's how Anna overcomes her doubts and her fears to create that preservation society? Yeah, I think that's that could be a fair assessment. Creating this preservation society to safeguard these stories and to make sure that they are there for the tribe yeah, is a way for her to um, I think, establish herself and overcome maybe some of her doubts or insecurities because she can see, hey, I I did this, I built this. And she can take the strength that those stories give because they are lessons, life lessons. You know, they are, they are meant to help you understand the world around you a bit better. So, yeah, I think those are definitely very helpful to her. They're, in a sense, maybe even healing to her. They, they help her deal with the issues she's facing. What a monumental task and a huge responsibility for a 17-year-old to, I mean, everything that she faced, but like yeah. to keep the stories of her tribe alive. I could see why she was afraid at first to talk to the council about the Preservation Society idea. Yeah, she was, she was a bit intimidated to actually make the proposal to... Uh, get this preservation society started. But, but yeah, I think that's also part of her growth, obviously, you know, becoming stronger, really seeing that these stories are necessary, not just to her, but for everybody. If she just keeps them to herself, yes, they might benefit her, but she knows that they can definitely help the tribe as well. It help help them to see what they're letting go to. Yeah. And to maintain the identity of the tribe as well. I mean, she found her identity through these stories and other truths. So it feels important for her to continue that. But gosh, it must have been so scary for her too at the same time. Yeah, I bet. And, you know, Anna unfortunately does have to deal with a lot of scary stuff, a lot of fear. Someone had asked me, someone else who had read the book already, why is there so much terror? Why is there terror at every turn in this novel? I think it was just necessary. You know, it, it takes place in a, a, a very short period of time, roughly one month. And uh, throughout that month, we have several young women going missing, including Anna's sister. So how could you not be 
afraid. When someone you love is is not home, that's all you're going to think about. You know, you're going to be consumed by it. So uh, I really wanted that fear to come through throughout the story. Unfortunately, Anna had to deal with it, but she comes out stronger in the end. Yeah, she's amazing. I mean, she's the reason why they got any answers at all. I also want to talk about the casino a little bit as we're talking about progress and the tribe is all about moving things forward and a sort of like, quote unquote, modernizing with the paving streets. And I said it that way because it's clear that Anna felt two ways about it. So there's new cars, new clothes, paved roads, cell phones jobs. But on the other hand, it feels as though the casino doesn't treat the indigenous employees with respect. Like the opportunities are very surface level. How do you feel um, casinos built on indigenous lands affect the people living there? You know, for the most part, I think they can have a really positive effect. Um, Like you mentioned, suddenly there are more jobs. And and of course, obviously, there's more money coming in and, and people are able to perhaps pursue things such as education that they weren't able to before. But of course, whenever money comes into play, there's always the potential for the negative side as well. And I did want to show both of those things, even in small ways. Like, you know, I mentioned that some of the characters are now going to college or some Mm -hmm. of the characters are now able to, um, you know, fix the holes in the roof or, you know, get the new appliances in their kitchen because they're necessary. But then, um, you know, on the flip side, there's also the opportunity to spend that money on vices such mm-hmm. as, you know, alcohol, drugs, among other things that are also mentioned in the novel. So it sometimes can be a double edged sword. It really just comes down to, I think, the individual. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard to say it's, it's going to impact everyone the same way. Of course, there's the good, there's the bad. And that's what Anna recognizes. She, yeah. She's like, there's some some people like her father are, are doing things for the family and trying to, to to better their situation. And then you have other people kind of like Fox in the story who he's buying, you know, the flashy watch, the, the flashy truck, um, the new TV, not really caring about his future so much. He's just enjoying enjoying the moment and, and going along with it, which might not be the best idea. Yeah. And his bolo ties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it feels like she's caught very much between two worlds and she knows that progress needs to be made so that everyone can move forward. But seeing that it has to happen in a way that will help people. And so it, it feels like she is trying to help that. Her heart's in the right place. She wants to see she wants to see the tribe do well. And that's really what frustrates her in, in many ways, because uh, she can recognize uh, the 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 areas where people are faltering and to her maybe it's a bit easier and she, she can see it so clearly and um, to her she can say you know this is what needs to be done or this is what we should be doing but getting that message across and making everyone take it seriously is you know that's the hard part and I think a lot of us struggle with that you know when we see something not going right or something that could be going better uh, you know, how do you communicate that to someone? How do you open their eyes and make them see that? And sometimes you just have to let them, uh, you know, make their mistakes and learn from them. And and that's also part of the story as well. And I loved her, her grandma and how she played that role of um, like being a listening ear to Anna to air out those frustrations and really be that safe place. Kind of felt like the only safe place for Anna to 
let things go, but also for Anna to reflect on how much good progress has been made just in her grandma's lifetime. Definitely. And that's also something that I was able to pull from, you know, just history and and that documentary that I'd mentioned from my tribe. There were interviews in there with tribal elders who were able to speak about what it was like when they were young and the, the challenges that they had to face. And I should say that documentary is, I think, at least 20 years old. So you get the history from early in the in the 1900s from people who lived through it. And, uh, you know, the, the reservation for a lot of them was the only safe place. You know, leaving the reservation, you were subject to discrimination. This was before the civil rights movement. So, you know, I clearly remembered from that documentary, this this tribal elder crying, talking about how she couldn't go to school. And when they would go into town, uh, they couldn't go into certain certain stores and they can only go into uh, certain diners if it was guaranteed that they were going to spend a certain amount of money and and they would have to sit in certain areas. The reservation is the safe place, but like you mentioned, um, Gran in the story is Anna's safe place as well. It's able to go to her. And I, for me, it was kind of interesting because Gran is someone who now doesn't have a whole lot of power. She's suffering a, or she suffered a stroke and she's lost a lot of her abilities. Anna wants to make sure that Gran doesn't forget who she is, doesn't forget her power, doesn't forget her role within the tribe. You know, I really like that relationship between the two because Anna could come to her and share her frustrations and her fears. And even though Gran is weakened, she still has some power within her, which Anna makes her or helps her see. I loved all of the moments that you put in there with Gran. It just felt so special. I I really loved her. Thank you. Yeah, I, I do too. I think she's a very comforting character. And, and you know that stable character for Anna because there is a lot of instability oh my gosh yeah <laughs> that's an understatement and it felt it felt like you put those moments in with Grant at all the right times because there's so much discomfort and terror in the story that it's like but then she can go home and she can talk to her Grant and and not feel as scared all the time <laughs> Yeah, definitely helps her gain a little assurance. And Gran is the one who does offer a, a you know a story that helps Anna really cement who she is. And and that story you know comes into play and, and it leads her right through until the end of the of end of the story. Is that story? Uh, and I don't want to give anything away, but is that story one that you um, made up, or is that one that you took from some other cultural stories that you? That one is actually from another. Um, tribe. I can't remember. I have the book right here. I could try to look it up, but that story is based on um, a native ceremony. So, and it, it it plays into what we were talking about before with native nations being accepting of gay, lesbian, trans um, individuals. Yeah, like you said, don't want to give away too much of the story, but it plays into um, helping Anna figure out what she is or who. You worked in so many beautiful stories just that when I can think off the top of my head when Anna and Grace were walking to work and Grace says tell me about the stars and she tells her two different stories about the stars did you work in some of your favorite stories yeah and I'm, I'm glad you brought up the stars that is one of my favorite stories the death story and so they say you know when someone dies um, a, a stone is thrown into the river and if the stone uh, floats 
then the person who died can return to their tribe. But if the stone sinks, then that person becomes a star in the sky to watch over um, their tribe at night. And I just think that's a really beautiful, beautiful sentiment and a beautiful thought because, you know, it's comforting to us. You can look to the sky and you can see your loved ones up there and you know that they're always going to be there. Yeah. And it's such a beautiful like you said, it's a beautiful story and a beautiful sentiment. And that's why stories like that exist, right? To help us when we're feeling that times are really dark and bleak. And so it's so nice that you worked that in there. Yeah. Like I said, I love that story. And I think it does a lot for, for the characters. It just really makes them, makes them a bit hopeful, I guess, because they're still there. We haven't, we haven't lost them completely. There's something that I wanted to touch on as you're talking about this documentary, which, by the way, do you remember what it's called? A Promise from the Sun. And it's about the uh, Tunica Biloxi tribe, which is the tribe that I belong to. Thank you. That's it sounds like a great documentary. I want to check that out. Um, Something that you said, too, um, is that like the stories of indigenous people during the pre-civil rights era aren't as prevalent as other people of color. And so. I feel like over the past couple of years, there's been a little bit of a shift culturally that we're seeing more Indigenous stories coming to the forefront, whether it be novels or TV shows like Reservation Dogs or movies or documentaries. And how do you feel seeing these stories coming up in popular culture? I think it's great. I mean, I enjoy so many of these these programs and, and books, especially There's so many great Native writers mm-hmm. out there now. And I know a lot of them don't want to just be called Native writers, but you know, anytime you just put a label on someone that it might not be the best idea, but, but there are so many great writers right now who are, pu- are producing so many amazing stories with um, Native influences. And uh, I think I think it's great because it, it does fight stereotypes. It does help um, make people see that, you know, natives not just these ancient people living yeah. on uh, uh, reservations and who are just um you know having uh powwows or, or you know dancing around with feathers uh, it makes hopefully it'll make people see that you know we're all just people and we all have the same problems and we all have the same issues and we have the same goals and dreams and uh you know we're all in this together but yeah it, it's great to to be able to see representation and be able to um, see more exposure for the things that are valued within specific tribal nations, so that others who aren't, um, you know, familiar with those cultures are able to have a better understanding of it. Yeah, and these stories have always been told; just they are more accessible to more people, and it feels like that's a little bit of what the ultimate goal with Anna's Preservation Society could be too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The Preservation Society in the end is a place where both the tribe and non-tribal members can go to get a firm firm grip on, you know, the history of this tribe, who they are, where they come from, and ultimately where they're headed as well. And also, if I could go back, you mentioned Reservation Dogs. I just wanted to say that Elva, Elva Guerra, who mm-hmm. stars on that show as Jackie, actually did the audiobook narration for, for us, which was really awesome. I thought her voice sounded familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was real thrilled to have have her do this. So what do you want readers to take with them when they're finished with Sisters of the Lost Nation? Of course, I want I want them to be able to say, you know, this is a, a great chilling tale, something that will stick with them, maybe give them a good mystery to, to, to solve as they're going along in the story. But also, like I said earlier, 
just really want people to perhaps gain even greater awareness of this this issue of young young women and girls going missing and should also say that it, it does go beyond women and girls it also affects uh, young men boys as well don't necessarily get as much attention but um, they are included in in some of the statistics uh, so I think it is important to point that out as well uh, but yeah overall I, I really just want people to be more aware and also uh, you brought up that I, I included an author's note at the end and I did include some resources if anyone wants to try to get involved or help in any way but even simple things like sharing information on social media there are great um, resources out there that will you know post when someone goes missing and if you can just share that get the faces out there um, help people see who is in need and who we're looking for um, little things like that can definitely help out so maybe this book could be um, something that will maybe open people's eyes to the problem and get them more involved as well and, and like I said it doesn't have to be anything major just little things definitely help I think it will I wanted to say this is like this is such a beautiful debut. I can't believe this is your debut. What's next for you? Well, we have um, my second book coming out next year, April 2024. And if if you liked this world, it does take place on the Dakota Reservation once again. It's not a direct sequel. Actually, it happens 10 years before this book. Part of it takes place 10 years before, and then uh, part of it also takes place in the present. So we have a little bit of back and forth going on. And um, like I said, not, not a complete sequel, but they do hinge on each other. I think they fit together very well. You'll see recurring characters and you'll also find some answers that you didn't get in Sisters of the Lost Nation, such as what happened to Miss Shelby. And I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. You said 10 years before. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know where I was going. So, yeah. What happens to Miss Shelby? Also find out who dug up those graves in the cemetery. Where did those bones come from? I think I think it's going to be a lot of fun. The next one is a bit more horror based if you like horror you're going to get a bit more of that but also touches on some social issues as well so uh, yeah I, i'm hoping it'll also be um something that will be helpful to to native communities at the same time but yeah i'm i'm, I'm finishing up that second one right now actually um the the manuscript is due next week so i'm in the final stages of yeah getting that all getting that all prepared and then Hopefully, you know, hopefully I'll have some more stuff out after that. I do have a short story coming out in in the fall, I believe in September that will be out. Um, it's part of an anthology called Never Whistle at Night, which is being uh, published by Penguin Random House. I'm just hoping things will go well and hopefully I can keep doing this for a while longer. Yeah, that's so exciting. You've been you're really busy in the best possible way. And yeah. I am thrilled to hear that the next project will tell us a little bit more about Miss Shelby and those graves because you didn't answer those questions. <laughs> Purposefully. You know, yeah. I, I'll, I'll admit, I actually wrote most of the second one before I wrote Sisters of the Lost Nation. So I was able to play off of that because I already knew what was going on and, and what's going to be the second one. So I was able to have a lot of fun with that because it, I, it, I basically set myself up for the mysteries that take place in Sisters of the Lost Nation, uh, knowing that I would be able to reveal those mysteries later on. I love that. I'm so excited. Now I can't wait for April 2024. Are you reading anything right now that really excites you? Oh, yeah. I, I feel like there's been so many great books lately. I, I, I usually read at least, I'd say about two books a week. I just finished reading 
and this one was out already for a few years, but it absolutely blew my mind. Um, Tender is the Flesh by Augustina Basterica. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely loved that. I'm in the middle of Stephen Graham Jones, Jones's latest one, uh, Don't Fear the Reaper. So good. Also, his his novel, um, on, The Only Good Indians, also one of the, uh, for me, one of the greatest horror novels I've ever read. Oh my gosh, so uh, scary. That, yeah. so I actually scary. just read it again because I, I love it so much. I just read um, Brett, Brett Easton Ellis's new one, The Shards, which I thought was amazing. I'm a big fan of his work. Um, so yeah, there's so much good stuff out there right now. There's so much out there, including... Sisters of the there Lost Nation. I won't show. Well, I will show you. This is what I did to my copy. I, <laughs> really, I read it to death. <laughs> it's a beautiful book. I love it so much. Readers are going to love it. It's a great story. And I'm so happy that you took the time to talk to me today about this oh, book. Absolutely. You know, I, I couldn't even believe that you all wanted to have me on. So. Uh, you know, believe me, this is an honor for me. I'm super appreciative to, to be talking to you. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for all the kind things you said about the book. Uh, it really does mean a lot to me. We are big fans. I can't wait to see what comes next from you. Thank you. Appreciate next year. It. Hey readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Sisters of the Lost Nation. I'm Mark at my Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, and I've got two fantastic booksellers who are going to recommend books for us today. I've got Madison in Los Angeles, and I've got Jamie in Leewood, Kansas. Take it away, Madison. Hello. So when I was thinking about books to recommend, I kind of wanted to take it in a slightly different direction and recommend a graphic novel because I'm a huge fan of graphic novels. So when I was thinking of something to recommend for Sisters of the Lost Nation, I was thinking of Something is Killing the Children by James Tynan IV. I love this graphic novel. The artwork, one, is beautiful. And the concept of the story is that children in Archer's Peak start to go missing. And the adults have no idea what is happening because sometimes the children come back, sometimes they're gone for good. And then the children that do come back have these horrific stories of monsters that are in the shadows, but the adults, they can't really see anything. They don't know anything that's going on except that the children are going missing and the ones that return just have these horrific, horrific tales. And then a woman strolls into town and she is their be-all savior. She can see these monsters. Erica Slaughter is there. She's going to save the day. She's one of the only people that believes the children that have come back. And she is there to solely kill the monsters. You get to go on that journey. And that's the first volume one is just the first tiny snippet of that. And I believe it extends through, I think there are five now. Again, it's a graphic novel. I would really, really like to recommend just because it also kind of has that mystical feel of like, things are happening, but we don't know exactly what. Is it actually like, something magical or is it a person like what is actually taking these children which is why I wanted to recommend it again it has such a beautiful art style I'm a huge fan of graphic novels for their art style Um, I love what they did with the book and that was something is killing the children by James Tynan Jamie what do you have 
for us this week? Just recently, there have been, to be corny, some killer horror books <laughs> that have been published by Native American authors that incorporate kind of different indigenous mythologies and uh, modern thriller or crime elements. And one of my very favorite books uh, this last year did that expertly, and that is White Horse by Erica T. Worth. So I picked this book up initially because I just love the cover image of this really cool looking woman with this dark fringe of bangs and these big round mirrored sunglasses and kind of like a, a wisp of smoke. And then as I'm looking at it, I see there's a blurb from Sylvia Moreno-Garcia that says perfect new wave horror and I'm sold, right? I, I, haven't, I don't even have to read the rest of the jacket, <laughs> but I'm glad I, I was drawn in and, and by that cover and picked it up that day. Our heroine in this book is Carrie with a K, Carrie James, and she is self-described as an urban Indian living in Denver, hanging out at her favorite bar, The White Horse, um, listening to heavy metal, reading The Shining. She's carrying The Shining around with her for a good chunk of the book and trying to get along with her best friend and her first cousin's husband, who sees Carrie as a bad influence on his wife. Another aspect of her identity is really built around the fact that her mother abandoned her. She left Carrie when she was an infant, when she was literally a day-old newborn, and vanished. And in the aftermath of that, Carrie's dad uh, spends years just extremely depressed, and he ends up getting into this terrible car accident and he suffers uh, permanent brain damage and is um, non-communicative as an adult. And so Carrie's kind of spending her time caring for her dad, wondering what happened to her mother, having a lot of anger about that when this old bracelet that belonged to her mother turns up. And with it, when she puts it on, come these visions that appear to be of her mom's past and of this really terrifying creature that seems like it's stalking Carrie through her dreams. And in these visions, it becomes really clear that she has not heard everything of her mother's story. And what she has heard about her mother is maybe not really even indicative of what actually happened or who she was as a person. And so now Carrie has to kind of reckon with her assumptions that she's been making about her mom this whole time. And as she digs deeper, all of her family relationships just become challenged um, because she kind of keeps er unearthing these long-held secrets. Um, one of the most entertaining side characters in the book is um, Carrie's aunt, and her name is Auntie Squeaker, which is a great name. She obviously has some secrets that she has not shared with Carrie. She's not letting on to everything she knows. And she is frustrated by Carrie's insistence that she's urban and doesn't practice the Native religion. Um, that's very worrisome to Auntie Squeaker, um, who wants Carrie to connect with her heritage. And as the investigation rolls on, Carrie has to get comfortable with the um, spiritual to get the answers that she wants. And that comes with its own risk of exposure to the beast that's literally stalking her nightmares. So I will share that uh, The Shining plays a big part in this book. And if you are a fan of The Shining and the Overlook Hotel, then there are going to be some fun Easter eggs for you here. Um, the horror is really thrilling, though, and the setting is gritty. The monster is terrifying. All the characters are really easy to root for. And the history of the missing Native women being ignored is, 
I think, reflective of the story um, that Nick Medina tells in The Sisters of the Lost Nation. Fantastic picks, as always. Well, that's all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning into Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty easy. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. Madison, where are you at? I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN Events Grove. And I'm Jamie. I'm at BN Leewood KS. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.